Welcome to the Water People Podcast. I'm your host, Lauren Hill, and my co-host is Dave Rastovich. This season is supported by Patagonia, whose purpose-driven mission is to use business to save our home planet. We acknowledge the Bundjalung Nation, the first and ongoing custodians of the land and waters where we work and play, who have lived, worked, and cared for this sea country for tens of thousands of years. Respect and gratitude to all First Nations people who continue to practice the cultural, spiritual, and educational customs of their ancestors. Today, we're in conversation with waterwoman Karina Petroni. Karina was born and grew up in the Panama Canal Zone, but is known as one of Florida's prodigy surfers. In 2006, the New York Times called her one of the, quote, scions of Florida's recent surfing tradition. Karina's promise for professional surfing, combined with her family's investment in managing her career, was so great that she was earning a living from surfing as a 10-year-old. Karina competed on the World Championship Tour for more than a decade, holding the top spot on the leaderboard for a spell in 2008. And in 2009, Karina featured in the Academy Award-winning documentary, The Cove. As her passion for competing waned in her early 20s and she started to come down from the high of being a teenage professional athlete, Karina discovered that her management had betrayed her and lost all of her assets. She had nothing material to show for her 14-year career. She had to start over completely. Karina now happily resides in the Caribbean with her husband Dave, where she manages rental properties, sails, surfs, freedives, and assists with marine salvage operations, which is where her story begins today. Before we get into chatting about Karina's story, I wanted to take a moment to explain why we haven't been releasing podcasts for the previous two to three months. We've been on the road showing a short film that I've made called The Physics of Nose Writing, but we were also visiting family in Florida. I hadn't been home in three years, so that was a really yeah massive intense, beautiful experience to get to reunite with my family and it was also a pretty tumultuous time um, because my parents both now have been through life-altering health challenges. And um, my dad in particular is, you know, completely, a completely different person from when we saw him last um, about, you know, before this trip three years ago, he's had strokes on both sides of his brain. And so it was a, um, it was a really confronting experience that first part of our two month trip. And my mom, maybe if you've been listening, you know, since the beginning of Water People, you know that my mom went through a really traumatic health scare where she had her leg amputated and then ended up going through stage four cancer. And now miraculously, she is in remission, which is amazing, but she's really struggled to find her spark for life again. And she's struggled to really get out of bed for the last few years. And so it was also confronting to be there with her and to try to bring joy to a, you know, kind of hopeless feeling situation. If you face the mortality of your parents, then you know this experience of so many complex emotions at the same time. You know, the joy of having the time to be together. I didn't think that we would have that with my mom, but then also the sadness of mourning future dreams that you know, I'd had for us and for our son, Manoa, with her. And um, yeah, it's just, it's complex. And so that set us up for <laughs> a complex trip 
and it was. And on top of that, we ended up getting so sick in our first few weeks in Florida, like proper lung infection, coughing more than I think either of us had ever really experienced before. And anyway, all this is to say that the podcast fell by the wayside a little bit. We always had it on our mind um, to be sitting down and recording, and we did get to do a little bit of that. But you'll hear in this recording with Karina that, you know, we both sound a little bit stuffy. You can probably hear Minoa coughing in the background. Um, We were just kind of trying to do our best to um, keep up with what life was handing us at the moment and to be present for the really intensely challenging experience of, you know, walking with parents into maybe their final years, final months, maybe. We don't know. Yeah, and you did great with it, Lauren. It's not an easy um, path to walk, and all of us have a very unique experience of that. And you're an only child, and we're on the other side of the world, and I'm sure a lot of people can relate to that strange feeling of being stuck where you are over the last few COVID years and friends or family needing perhaps your kind of help on the other side of the world and not being able to offer it. Mm. Um, so there's a lot there for sure. And so that that period also was a strange one for us because we were leaving Australia, the east coast of Australia in particular, that has been under rain and flooding and still is the entire year of 2022. And so I have to acknowledge that for us, it was really exciting to be able to um, leave the area for a little while and try and dry our gills out and get the mold and the moisture out of our bodies. And that was um, pretty much building to a peak when we got to Florida and we had to, you know, take antibiotics and um, get through the, that lung infection thing and and move on. And so I, I also acknowledge that when we were feeling that crook, really, we didn't want to sit with too many people and have conversations. <laughs> we really didn't want to pass this funk on to anyone else. We already did that to your poor family when we got there. Um, and so, you know, we that were prioritizing. Too. That was horrible too. We were kind of, right when we arrived, we were faced with the situation We've been away. We haven't seen these people that we love for three years and we're sick. Do we, do we isolate from them for, you know, a week of our two weeks stay, 10 days of our two weeks stay, or do we just expose them to it and try to recoup or, you know, reconnect during that time? I bet a lot of people have faced that situation. Yeah, for sure. And these are all such new experiences for us as global humans now. You know, we have a relationship that spans the globe, you and I, Mm. and so many of us do. And especially in Australia, it's such a multicultural nation. There's so many crossed over stories and Mm. cultures and um, histories. and, And, you know, this is new territory, how to navigate it, how to do it right. And with love and and kindness. Uh, And so I think at that point, we were really trying to be our healthiest selves so we could be our most useful selves. Mm. And so, you know, really sitting down, turning on the tech and recording conversations with people really did get swept aside because we we needed to sit in the sun and dry out, Mm. occasionally surf, see the closest family members you know, that we'd gone that whole way to go and see 
and then just try and fix our own systems. And what struck me um, as our travels continued, because we once we left Florida, we, we went on to California and to the islands of Hawaii, um, was how similar that story was for people around the world and maybe just around the Pacific and North America in that people had recently lived through, you know, hurricanes, double floods in Kauai, fires and floods in California um, and, you know, upheaval, ecological upheaval, which of course affects us Mm. and our lives and our health. And that was really striking for me was that we thought here we are in our little bubble on the east coast of Australia getting just absolutely washed away with these huge record-breaking rain levels. But then when you speak with friends who are also embedded in their ecology, surfers, divers, fishers, sailors, Mm. um, climbers, runners, they were saying pretty much the same things about their region over the last few years. And, and, um, you know, that's... An interesting experience and something that is, I think, very important to bring back to our community here, and that's why I'm bringing this up right now, is for us to realise that many of these systems that we're a part of, these ecological systems, are experiencing similar things right now and require our attention Mm. and require us to turn up in our healthiest, strongest selves so we can look after each other when things go pear-shaped or look after at least ourselves and our loved ones in our inner circle. So that's my take on why we didn't get to record and uh, keep the rhythm going with the podcast. And doesn't Karina echo that so beautifully in our conversation toward the end of this chat? She speaks to her challenge of the word selfish and how important she's found it as a, you know, a former professional athlete and now finding new ways to be in the world how important it is for her to take care of her physical self, to do what some people would call, you know, being selfish by taking good care of herself so she can take care of other people, so she can rise to the needs of an ailing parent and other loved ones. And that that was one of the main takeaways of this conversation for me that I found really insightful and beautiful. Mm, So wonderful. And it's great to hear about your Florida connection, the two of you, and how much of an early surf star Karina was and how even though she was 12 or so and traveling the world already as a young professional surfer, you were seeing her, you know, in these ads and photos and videos and just in awe of this young girl who was so skilled in the water. She really was. And bold. A surfing prodigy. I mean, it's hard to overstate how pervasive her image was in surf media on the East Coast. And even though she's a few years younger than I am, um, she started surfing before I did. You know, she started her surfing career really when she was nine or 10 and then had this sort of illustrious run on the World Championship Tour. And she branched out into fashion and non-endemic brands in a way that was fairly new for the surf industry. Um, and, And she really had big goals and a big vision for her surfing career that I think is really admirable. Um, And then she speaks to how it kind of came crashing down around the age of 21. It was a, you know, a relatively short, but still kind of long, 14 years, but through her most formative years, you know, through her entire teenage years. Um, And so, yeah, I was just really curious to chat with her in depth about some of these issues that we've 
spoken a little bit about over the years, but we hadn't really taken the time as adults to sit down. Um, and I just wanted to hear her talk story about all of these things from her perspective. And so with all that in mind, it's really a pleasure for us to share this conversation with Corona, with Corona <laughs> Peroni. <laughs> oh, it's just great. She's such a live wire and such a fun, wonderfully strong presence. And she just doesn't take any shit, but she doesn't take it too seriously. And I feel like uh, the young women coming into the surfing world these days could really do well to tune into what Karina has learned through her surfing life and her adventures in so many different avenues, her surfing and her trajectory to become the water woman that she is right now, which I think is a really fascinating and wonderful story. So I hope people enjoy it. So Karina, we begin these podcasts in the same place each time, and that's by asking about a time or experience after which you were never the same. Do you have a story like that that you'd be willing to share? Uh, yes. I was in a helicopter in the Windward Passage in between Haiti and Cuba. And my husband, actually, I don't even know we were married at the time. Um, my husband now, David and I were in the helicopter and our friend and his business partner was flying the helicopter and we landed on the north, the northern tip of Haiti. And we had fuel strapped to the skids of the helicopter, which is really dangerous to fly with fuel strapped to the skids mm. of the helicopter. Landed on the northern tip of Haiti to refuel the helicopter because we were coming, kind of hopping down from the Bahamian archipelago of islands coming down. And the mission was to rescue a boat that had been abandoned in the Windward Passage. And the Windward Passage is a very congested shipping lane, mainly from ships coming from, you know, the Gulf Stream and North America, transiting to the Panama Canal and then onwards to the Pacific. Uh-huh. So it's quite the bottleneck right there. Hmm. And um, so we landed on the northern tip of Haiti to refuel because we were going to run out of fuel. And then... <laughs> Uh, the funniest part about it was I was a vegan at the time, like a really hardcore vegan. And I didn't really know what was ahead of me or what lied ahead of me and, and what to anticipate. So I, I, I was stuffing like Amy's burritos down my wetsuit, sitting in the back of this helicopter, like stuffing carrots, <laughs> all these random vegetables. Cause I'm like, shit, man, I don't know what's about to happen, but I think we're about to jump out of this helicopter and board this abandoned vessel that's been afloat what they was drifting into cuban waters so once it gets into cuban waters you know kind of game over so we take back off from haiti and that was an experience in itself and uh because haiti is just it's unreal if you get a chance to see it um bit sad but and then we get back in the helicopter and we we have the coordinates of where the boat is and we're hovering over this boat and I'm sitting on the edge of this helicopter with burritos and carrots stuffed up my wetsuit. And I'm like, well, here it goes. (laughs) (laughs) And we jump out of this helicopter and we swim our asses over to this boat. That's been adrift now for like a couple weeks. And typically, you know, when a vessel or anything is adrift for a few weeks, you never know what's kind of lurking, you know, below the surface. And, um, we pull ourselves aboard this boat and helicopter flies away. And luckily we had 
a plane come by that was part of the same mission and throw us out like gallons of water and like sat phones and, you know, VHFs and more burritos. No. <laughs> uh, and then we just, we pull ourselves aboard this boat and, and it was a, it was a 12 day journey after that. But, um, you know, it could go on for hours, but I think after I, that was kind of a pivotal moment for me as far as kind of here goes nothing in a Hail Mary. And, um, and we, we have to get this boat back into Bahamian waters and, you know, the batteries were completely run dry when they abandoned ship, they left everything on. Uh, Haitians had come and stripped the boat. You know, they pulled all the halyard lines and the sails, and we literally just made do with bare bones, got below deck, disconnected the plumbing to get water, and found spaghetti, found coffee, thank God. <laughs> and, um, yeah, and then that was it. And then just try to, like, tack our way all the way back up to Anagua. And I think that after that, that was a big turning point for me as far as like what you're capable of in, in really intense, stressful situations and not having any options. Like the only option was just to get out of the situation, make do, get back to a safe Harbor. Mm. That was that. So. Mm. Wow. That's yeah. amazing. Can you yeah. tell why, why were you doing this? Yeah. Can you talk to us about why you were doing well, this? Well, my husband was running a Marine salvage company at the time that his parents had founded. So, um, a, a business that was completely unknown to me before we met and very, very non-conventional lifestyle as far as, um, rescuing yachts and boats in distress. And, and I guess in a very simple, uh, way you would be recognized as a fire truck on the water, so to speak, and not necessarily maybe aiding to the people, maybe the coast guard does that, mm. but you are there more to prevent the vessel from being a total loss, mm. which in return typically saves an insurance company a lot of money from forking out their entire policy. Mm. So that is where you get paid. Right. This is a very interesting business, but you're on call 24 seven. And sometimes, you know, things are relatively easy and other times you're jumping out of helicopter. Mm. Yeah. What interests me about that, <laughs> Karina, is that that experience does not um, enter your life at a point where you've uh, been sitting on a couch watching TV your whole life before that. Like no. Before that, you've had yeah. a lot of adventures. Oh. And we've been together on some of those adventures. Yeah. <laughs> and you've been in the world-class surfing competition arena and sponsored surfer arena mm -hmm. for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, like, ha Does that experience stand head and shoulders above all of those other ones in some way then? Because you would have had a lot of Hail Mary moments <laughs> over the years yeah. in surfing, through yeah. surfing, yeah? Yeah, yeah. How I, does that differ? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if it completely differs because everything's relative and, and within context, right? So I mm. think that uh, I would never live a life away from the ocean now, especially, my gosh, it's hard for me not to, like, mm. go too far without being able just to see it, make sure it's still there, mm. you know? Um, but I... How does it differ? I guess it differs because I was taken out of my comfort zone. And, and I think that maybe we all have different types of comfort zones, but it goes to show that the ocean as an entity can continuously teach you mm. so many things. Mm. And it's, there's so many layers within that, that you are constantly learning. So fortunately to become a surfer and, and a water woman and a lover of the ocean and, and surround your life with that, I think prepared me for uh, an event like that. Mm. Karina, you mentioned that 
the marine salvage business was an unconventional way of life. Yeah. Unconventional ways of life maybe weren't so unfamiliar to you. Can you talk us through your childhood upbringing, where you were and what your formative experiences with the water were like? Sure. Um, I was born and raised in the Panama Canal Zone. It was the American jurisdiction within the country of Panama, which, you know, I think is, is a necessary uh, reference to know because it's certainly different than growing up within the country of Panama, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, a lot of immigration officers, when I come to the United States, they ask me, well, how did you become an American, right? So mm-hmm. I was born in the canal zone of Panama, which was an incredible upbringing. My dad went down there in the late seventies and him and my mom went down there like, let's just try it for a year, you know, see how it goes. And, and, uh, to become a pan canal pilot. And then they ended up staying for 23 years and growing up in Panama is incredible. Uh, I, I was in the water, you know, shortly after birth and had a machete in my hand at five, you know, going through the jungle and adventuring and bass fishing in the lake. And, and I was there until I was about 13. Um, mm. So growing up within the jungles of Panama w- was unbelievable. And I think that that was uh, in- incredibly helpful for me to, to craft maybe who I am today. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think that mm-hmm. what you're exposed to at a young age, um, through pure immersion and being that sponge when you're young, um, helps preps you for maybe what's to come. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. You have brothers and sisters. Do I have two brothers and a sister? Yeah. And what was your schooling experience like through those years? Yeah. Schooling was uh, good. I went to, let's see, I was kind of in and out of school between, I guess from preschool Preschool to sixth grade, I was in and out of school. And uh, because by that time, when I started surfing at nine, I was in between Panama. My, my parents bought property in North Florida, Atlantic Beach, just north of here at Crescent. And then I started going to Australia by the time I was nine. Got residency down there somehow. Couldn't angle that one. Um, and then kind of just did between Australia, Panama, and Florida uh, for, for a while. And then was in and out of school, doing a lot of homeschooling. And then sixth grade, I went full tilt homeschool until 10th grade. Chemistry and trigonometry came to the picture. My mom was like, see you later. <laughs> and, then I, and then I went and got the, uh, the good enough diploma. You know, luckily I had a, you know, full-fledged surfing career at that time. I was, was very blessed and fortunate to have an income from surfing at the time. So technically I had a job, so I didn't have to, you know, proceed on to university at the mm. time. So, mm. Wow. You were... I mean, you still are, but when I was growing up on the East Coast of Florida here, you were traveling and having experiences that I couldn't yet even imagine, but you were one of the standout stars of (laughs) surfing through my early surfing experiences, Um, and I've just always admired your surfing so much. Likewise. Your kindness and your sense of adventure. It's just, yeah, inspired so many of us. Oh, yeah. That's very sweet. Um, Thank you. Can you talk us through what those years were like as a competitive surfer coming from Florida? Yeah. Why does that matter? Why does, why does coming from the East Coast matter in the context of the big scale of professional surfing or does it? I think it does. I mean, I, I guess times are changing now, but I'm very East Coast proud, very, you know, Florida proud. I, you know, I, I grew up watching, you know, of course I grew up watching Tom Curran and, um, but, you know, grew up heavily watching, 
you know, Floridian-based surfers, you know, Frida Zamba, Lisa Anderson, Kelly, of course, the Hobgoods, the Lopez brothers, mm. like, no, no, Floridians are scrappy. They're not picky. You know, <laughs> they, they keep it moving, you know? So <laughs> I think that there's something to be said for that, right? And, mm. I, and I realize, once again, that times are changing and, and the level is escalated so much that I, you know, I'm not going to dive into that sector now, but I think that growing up in Florida, I think you, you can't be picky. You have to keep morale very high (laughs) 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 and, uh, and you just get out there and you just take what you can get. Mm -hmm. And I think that that was able to, um, prevail back in the day. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and and yes, Kelly traveled a lot. The Hobgoods traveled a lot, right? They did, but I think that their roots were here. And I saw CJ not too long ago at one of his film premieres here in St. Augustine. And, uh, I asked him that question. It was uh. cool. He had a Q and A after the screening. Uh. And I actually asked CJ that question. I was like, total little grom. And, that. <laughs> <I had a laughs> question. and I'm like, I want to know your opinion as to why you think Floridian surfers are some of the best in the world because they really are. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, so I think that that, I think that that's cool. And, um, especially coming from somewhere that is, is so relatively so small all the time, mm-hmm. um, which can all be also very harmful in other ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I, when I grew up, I competed against the boys. I was always, I was always in the boys divisions, right? So if you wanted to think at, at, in my area, late nineties, uh, mid late nineties, early two thousands, I think if you wanted to be a competitive professional surfer as a female, you better get your ass in the boys heats, you mm-hmm. know, and, see what it's all about and, mm. and, and win those heats, you know? So then if you're winning the boys heats, then you know, you're, you're doing well. And I think that mm. that helped me a lot and, um, very, very nostalgic for the ESA. Um, me and too. yeah. And all those double points contests yeah. and peanut butter jelly and reeking of urine by the end of the day and you're running around your wetsuit. <laughs> That's the best. That's the best, yeah. you know? And like, and I, I just have such killer, killer memories from that. And I still have some of the best friends, um, a childhood friends or till to this day. And I, you, every time you see that person, you always remind yourself like you and me. Right. So totally. same thing. So, yeah. yeah. To me, that perspective, Karina sounds like it would have slipstreamed quite well into the gold coast scene. <laughs> yeah. So when you went to Australia at those times, yeah, that was where you were going, wasn't it? Wasn't it was it to the Goldie. Yeah. Yeah. My brothers had, had gone there in the eighties and just fell in love as you do. Mm. And, uh, and then my oldest brother, Eric took me there when in 98, he's like, listen, you got to see these points. You got to see these waves. And it was funny. I think in 90, I think Steph, Stephanie and I still talk about this to the, to this day. Cause in 98, when I first showed up there in 99, I don't think snapper was a wave. It wasn't, it wasn't right? No, yeah. no, the, the sand pumping hadn't started. Right. Yet. There was yeah. no wave up there. Yeah. So we only surf rainbow <clears throat> and green mount was yep. like tits. I mean, green mount was like the jam. <laughs> yeah. right? And then, um, and then that was so great. Like that, those are such happy times. Like I still remember like you had like a little Nokia and you played snake all day. <laughs> <laughs> like you call, you go in like the Telstra phone booth and you remember you could dial the number and yep. the other person would pick up. It could be like two seconds surf. And then you call it. It's good. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, no, going to Australia at nine, 10, that was insane. And I showed up there like, you know, a full American girl, spawned nose to tail and was very, you know, ratted on because of that. Right. As, as Australians love to rat on the Americans and, um, got quickly into the rusty Gromfest and Lennox did that event. 
And, um, and then Steph and I quickly became friends and, and she was in that event, one of the very few events that I ever beat her in. <laughs> and, uh, and, and that it was funny. I remember she was wearing this like purple quickie spring suit. Like she got her dad got from like a yard sale and this aluminum foil surfboard. <laughs> like it literally had like al- aluminum, excuse me, <laughs> aluminum foil, like, uh, fiberglass to the deck. Like, what in the world? Who is this? Fuzzy blonde chick, <laughs> right? Was huge blue, and, and but I, I even at ten, I think I was just talking to someone about this the other day. I was like, even at like ten years old, I was able to comprehend that that person has something really special, mm. and it's cool. Like when you're a youth and able to see that, right? Yeah, see the but, spark. Yeah. yeah, but going to Australia that young and running around all those point breaks, man, what a magical oh country! I wasn't even surfing yet. I didn't start surfing, I think, until Mm. 2000. It was so awesome. I mean, I just, I treasure those days. When you started then, so Karina was... Karina was a star. A big deal for you. Karina was a big, a big deal. Yeah, and a star. Yeah, and and I know, I know this because of Blue Crush, (laughs) the original Blue Crush. There's a sequence. Oh, yes. With you and Steph, maybe even wearing that same spring suit that you're talking about. You're both tiny little bleach blonde haired grommets and i'm looking at this you this little girl from Uh, florida who's surfing these incredible uh, crystalline waves on the gold coast just going oh my gosh that is possible Uh, holy moly oh my gosh that's yeah so So i was fully looking up to you oh um what happened next so you're 10 year old surfing Uh traveling the world sponsored at a time when surfing was really blossoming into this more mainstream, lucrative kind of career path. Mm-hmm. What what was that like? Um, it was interesting. I guess you didn't know any. You probably didn't know any different, really. Yeah, no, I didn't. I didn't really know any different. I mean, I knew that I hated competing in the beginning, and I yeah. and I don't like to use the word hate too much, but I really did hate it. I despised it. I'd lock myself in the room. I didn't want to have anything to do with it. Hmm. Yeah, so that was that. That's interesting. But my my brother was a very big push for me. And I have learned as I've gotten older and I've seen now younger kids coming up within the professional surfing realm. I think that it's a very necessary balance to have there. You know, if you see potential in a young kid, I think it's wonderful to give them the gift of quote unquote sport or music or right. And I think that's awesome to be able to carve a path for a young kid, but I think it's, it's, it can be a bit dangerous Mm. if you, um, bring in so many, uh, do's and don'ts Mm. and, you know, you Mm. must sticker your board like this. And, you know, so, uh, you know, I, I was making a considerable amount of money at the time, you know, when I was, when I was 12 years old, you know, Lisa certainly broke ground for women surfers, but I think that, you know, for myself, when I came through and, and started acquiring endorsements and paychecks, I was making, I was making a fair amount of money mm. for the time. I think you were probably yeah. you and Steph, that generation, you were the first young girls to be making a living from totally. sponsored surfing. Big time. That hadn't ever happened. Before. No, no yeah. big time. Yeah. yeah. And that was board shorts, Roxy, yeah. Lisa Anderson. Yeah. And and really, and I bring this up all the time because I think it's so important and so underappreciated in the timeline of surfing, that it was women surfing 
and board shorts and Roxy. Yeah. That's cool. Floated the surf industry, especially yeah. professional surfing, especially professional men's surfing. Yeah. A lot of those prize purses. Absolutely. Didn't come from the men's side of brands selling product. It came from the booming women's side. hundred yeah. percent. Yeah. I mean, with, with women being the main consumers for sure within shopping. Right. So, yeah. but no, absolutely. It makes me think about the high performance centers and the heavily choreographed um, early lives of talented young surfers these days <laughs> and that balance that you're just mentioning mm-hmm. and that you and probably your maybe some kids just after you are probably the first generation of having that kind of orbiting team around mm-hmm. them mm-hmm. as kids totally. and and what <clears throat> dangers are in um, that experience and that you can lose the joy, the uh, therapy, the coping mechanism mm-hmm. that surfing is Absolutely. when it's layered upon by sponsors, commodities, money, careers and all these layers. Absolutely. And mm-hmm. I, I think you see it in Australia right now we have a bit of a I'm just interested to hear your thoughts about this because in Australia right now there's um there's certainly a lack of interest in youth like in young surfers these days with the tour and contests because I think from my generation and uh younger so like the Dion Agiuses and Creeds and, and right. Craig Andersons and different right. crew in Australia um there's a lot of us who are, have been very talented but not competitive and have managed to avoid getting a nine to five job totally um and but not going to the contest world and then there's these other kids who got sort of shepherded into high performance centers um Mm. and sort of complicating the surfing experience as a young teenager through competitions and career and all that um who just burned out and just unless (laughs) you're winning you're you're nowhere to be seen hmm. kind of deal. Like it's a very cut and dry world, mm-hmm. whereas the more expressionistic, whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. free surfing yeah. world is different. There's a lot more open doors Interesting. Um, rather than just that one that leads to the top of the podium for contests. And so hmm. I feel like we're in new territory, like we're in new uh, terrain with this and that, mm. um, you know, you see um, the, the, I guess, the ramifications of that, you know, like, it's it's a pretty cutthroat world. There's very few people who do get to that level um, where you're making money and supporting yourself and your family or whatever and getting to the top of the podium. Um, but there is a long wake of kids behind those people who uh, don't quite fit the mould, hmm. you know, and um, and it's just good to discuss it because these Absolutely. things typically don't get discussed yeah. in a magazine or certain spots with these big companies. Um, so it makes me just wonder, like, what? how was that experience for you? Because you you didn't have any other options at that time. If you wanted to be sponsored, you had to do the competitions. Totally. And that's yeah. what you were doing. Right. But you hated it. Right. So can you walk us through that? Like, how did you sure. then get through all of and that? And did it dampen, did it, did it complicate your relationship with surfing? Oh, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm not here to lie or sugarcoat anything, right? I mean, that's a an incredible point you bring up, Dave. Uh, I think that that's um, an amazing juxtaposition to be able to look at that and to analyze that. And I think it's really interesting because I think it all falls back to 
that awesome question is surfing a sport, you know? So I think that that is really the catalyst of that topic because I would be lying to you if I told you that every time I went surfing, I wasn't thinking about performing and being the best. And that's so interesting to be able to like break down that barrier within just within going surfing and saying, you know, cool it. Like you don't have to always be, um, pushing yourself or doing better than what you did or get down on yourself because you didn't do this. And that's because I was a competitive surfer. You know, I, that's, it really is. I mean, I was ingrained, you know, to be a winner, you know, and my, uh, my husband, Dave and I were talking about this the other day. Cause he's like, Oh, well, you know, we were talking about an up and coming girl and, you know, he was saying, well, well, you know, maybe she's not going to be world champion or maybe she's not going to be the best, but maybe she can make a living out of professional surfing and just have a nice life. And I got all heated and pumped up. And I was like, well, that's not how you're going to make tour. And you get on tour to win. And, and if you're not, and I'm like, whoa, easy there. Like, holy crap. Right. Like, I got all, right. But it, that is. Was that you saying yes. easy there? Holy crap. No. Or was that? No, I was all fired up. No, you were fired up. But was there a part of you that was also saying, whoa, where did that come After. from? After. Yeah, of course. Because yeah, yeah. I wasn't wrong <laughs> in the situation. <laughs> no, I was right. I totally had a valid point at the time. <laughs> No, poor David's over there like, whoa, Whoa. chill out. (laughs) But I, but I am that, you know, I, I guess, and I'm not that competitive anymore. And I think that that was a big downfall for me towards the end of my career. I was like, I couldn't snake anybody anymore. I just couldn't back paddle anybody anymore. I couldn't be the bitch that you need to be. And I always admired the guys uh, as, well, at least when I was within competitive surfing heavily, it was that the guys could just go out there and be ruthless against each other and then come and like high five each other on the beach. Like, yeah, no worries. But it was so hard. Women are so emotional and, you know, they carry all this shit with them, right? <laughs> and it's like, you come back into the beach after just beating your friend who's literally like paying, you know, paycheck to paycheck. And then you got to go bunk up with them in the same hotel or room mm. or wherever you're at in Newcastle, you know, Mm -hmm. like, so I was just, it was so hard to like juggle all that for me. Mm -hmm. And so now I admire people now to be able to see it as like, this is my job. Um, and, and like you said, they have their team orbiting around them that they're able to, you know, stay not everybody by any means, but Mm -hmm. like they're at least let's call the top 10 are able to like have a network around them where they're just able to move from point A to point B and not have to be affected by anybody else's emotions. But back when I was on tour, everyone was all jumbled mess, right? Mm. But it was fun. Mm. But yes, I think that to get back to your, your point, I think it is very interesting to be able to look at, you know, the competitive aspect and then the free surfing aspect. And nobody did that better than you did as far as like carving the path for people to uh, be able to, live the pure and raw life of surfing and being this incredible waterman, water woman. And I think, yeah, absolutely. You were mm. a huge inspiration for me, especially towards my later years with the competitor, because maybe I don't need to do this. Maybe I don't need to just milk it for the 0.5. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but like, yeah. but, um, mm. but then at the same time, it afforded me uh, so many wonderful things as well. And mm. the, you know, the reason why I went to Taiji with you was because of competitive surfing. Mm. So I, you can't, I don't, I think it's important to give everything the respect and the credit that it deserves instead of just bashing it mm. all the time. And mm. I, you know, I'd be wrong for me to say that, but 
but yes, I, I think that I almost need like a re reawakening within myself through surfing. Um, in the sense that just like break it down and actually just become fully present in the moment for what you're doing as an art form. And as just painting a canvas mm. instead of just being so concerned about performance. And, uh, I, I find that topic really interesting and it's a sport. It's a lifestyle. It's a sport. It's a lifestyle. And I am certainly more on it's a lifestyle, mm. you know, than, than it being a sport, even though I am watching the events and I'm heavily mm. invested and interested, um, but I'm conflicted. Right. Yeah. And it's, <laughs> surfing's always been both. Yeah. You know, if we look back to Polynesia, surfing was competitive. Right. It was a competitive sport. Yeah. And it was also courtship. It was mm -hmm. dating. It was romance. Yeah. It was Aww. playing in the shorey. Yeah. You know, it was all of it. So it's so cool. This complexity is inherent in the surfing experience. Is it? Yeah. But it's I think it's really interesting, yeah, to think about the shadows that come along with the dream of being a professional surfer. Apologies for interrupting the conversation, but we'd like to take a moment to recognize the generous folks who help make this podcast possible. Sunbutter Skincare is committed to protecting people and the planet. They make vegan, reef-safe SPF 50 sunscreen packaged in reusable and recyclable tins. They're also the world's first certified palm oil-free sunscreen brand. Check out sunbutter.com.au to learn more about their skin and ocean-friendly lines of sunscreen, surf zinc, and skincare. Thanks also to Gary McNeil Concepts, who make cosmic surfboards for cosmic people. Gaz's boards combine recycled and plant-based materials that are built to last without sacrificing performance. To learn more, head to garymcnealconcepts.com. Absolutely. Of the also, way. Yeah, and especially too with what you were just saying then, Karina, I think it's really interesting to talk about how to unravel what's appropriate for you as you get older and your life and your locations change. Mm -hmm. So it's like, yeah, in your 20s when you've got lots of fire in your belly and mm -hmm. you're, um, you're wanting to really test your physical capabilities in the world and where you fit in comparison to others and mm -hmm. whatnot and, and and that's all the adventures you were just talking about, like sharing hotel rooms around the world with all your <laughs> friends and doing that, you know, yeah. like you, we're doing that all day. You party harder than that person. You can get up earlier and go surfing more and like it's more all over. Yeah, that was the deal. But then you oh, turn awesome. 30 or 40, whatever the age is, where yeah. you slip out of that 100%. type of living yeah. and then you realise, oh, that competitive mm -hmm. mindset that sort of, um, has to become automated in you f for you to succeed in the contest world. Like you have to automatically go paddle that spot, make sure you've capitalized on any weakness of your opponent or whatever it is. Like all of that isn't appropriate anymore. <laughs> and so what is interesting to me is what you're talking about is how you unravel from that and thrive and enjoy surfing the most and have a wonderful life and be in the moment like you're saying and fully appreciative rather than being railroaded by these, um, you know, lessons and these practices that you really had to employ yeah. deeply in your mm -hmm. 20s. And that's interesting because, you know, a lot of people don't talk about how in surfing most world champions are addicts of some sort or have had radical addiction troubles in their life or have had incredible ups and downs or especially the plunge after 
competitive surfing, what is surfing anymore if it's not winning and losing and, and quantifiable? To that point, most pro surfers, when they're transitioning out of their glorious, adventurous days of traveling around the world, being completely living, as you said, very unconventionally, mm-hmm. um, have a major fall from grace moment and have a really, lots of professional surfers have a really difficult time readjusting to what most people call normal life. How, how was that for you? Can, or can you talk us through that transition when you started questioning being on tour and whether or not that was how you wanted to be spending your time? Yeah, absolutely. I know exactly when that was. Um, I had a blast. Don't get me wrong. I had a lot of fun. I had too much fun. <laughs> I mean, I, my nickname was Corona Peroni for a reason. <laughs> there was a minute there that I was like, party on when life on tour is great and I will lead the pack. <laughs> so, okay. I am, no. And it was so cool. Like on that point, like, do you see the clip that was posted of all everyone going ham and G land? No, Mm-mm. like after the, after the G land event, like all the pro servers is like, Oh no, actually during the event, during the waiting period, excuse me. <laughs> uh, no, the event was certainly not over. And they were just in this lapse waiting period, you know, all stuck at G land and everybody just flipped the lid and had like this spontaneous, hellacious party. Awesome. <laughs> and everyone just went a wall and it was so good to see. It was so refreshing. Yeah. Right? It was just like, get that. <laughs> punk rock and roll back into <laughs> surfing and like it just made me so happy it made so many people so happy because you're like it's not all about kettlebells yeah. and you know <laughs> pumping out the 6.25 right it was just like thank god they're still human right like they still can party and it's funny because I don't even party anymore. I can't even remember the last time I was hungover. And I would like be rolling out of Joe Cools in Durban to surf my heat. And like, be proud of it. Like, who am I? And now I'm like completely the other way that barely touch booze and, uh, and, and like train my ass off. And like, it's just funny to come full circle. But, but as far as like, you know, my career kind of coming to a close, I am, I learned so much. And if you want to be in whatever you do in, in your life, protect yourself and protect your assets because there will be someone no matter how much they love you that will take advantage of you. Mm -hmm. And that is my biggest concern for all these youths that are coming up. And I don't care if it's your mom or if it's your dad or if it's your brother, it's your sister. And I am a bit polarized because I got burned so bad by a family member that I feel the very necessary urge to speak about being protected. Mm. Right. So when you're all gallivanting around the planet, having a blast, right. As a minor, <laughs> um, you need to make sure that you're being protected. Mm. And towards the end of my career, I was making $250,000 plus I was making an excessive amount of money, especially for the time. Mm. Right. And I just banked on people in my quote unquote corner had my back and were taking care of, finances that were coming in and the assets that were at, that, well, that, that I you had were the earning time, that, that I was earning at the earning. time. Right. Yeah. And that wasn't the case. Right. So I, I don't need to like dive into it and paint this horrible picture. I just, I got burned really bad. Mm. I lost everything that I had. So I, uh, and that 
puts it into perspective. Once again, going back to your point, as far as like being a competitive athlete or being this free surfer, right. in this free spirit, it was a job and I was making money and I was dragging massive board bags all around the planet with me. Right. So I was, I was legitimately trying to be the best and mm. to do my best mm. and making a really great income. Mm. And I just thought that something should have come from that. Mm. Something. A, a, mm. a, a you house, worked hard. Right? You played hard, but right. you also worked hard. Right. Yeah. And I, and I started when I was nine. Right. And then mm. and it kind of came viciously crashing down by the time I was 21. Wow. 21. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I lived such a full life between nine and 21. Like so blessed. But then, but all the experiences were worth all the tragedy. Hmm. You know, I would never, ever trade it for the world, mm -hmm. but I, but I sit here today as, as after having what a 13, 14 year career in, in something with, right. Whether you're a lawyer or a doctor, whatever, if, I don't care who you are. If you have a 14 year career in something, you should have a cinder block hut to sleep in. Right. So, and I don't. So I think that that, you know, now of course I'm different, married, new life for sure. But I think if you're an independent woman for such a long period of time, and you've stood on your own ground for so long, it means a lot to you to be able to have something. Mm. I did this, right? Yeah. yeah something so, to show for your hard work. Totally. Right. Of course. And I think, and I'm very like, I'm, I'm very pro paperwork in that sense. Mm -hmm. if, if, if you are going to go down that road and if you're going to have that orbit of people around you that are going to be helping you engage in this prolific career, just make sure that you're protected mm -hmm. and make sure that when you're 40, you got somewhere to sleep and you know what, you're mm -hmm. kind of set up. And I, and I admire the parents and the relatives that did that for my peers, mm -hmm. you know? So, and, and I, but it's okay. It's not like, woe is me. It's all right. Like, mm -hmm. but it, you, you learn from your experiences and I don't think it's like, it's important to talk about that mm -hmm. shit. You yeah. have to help, totally. help other people. I had no idea that you'd been through that. So yeah. I'm really sorry to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. No, um, but it's, it's really, like you said, it's super important to talk about that. Yeah. What a betrayal. Yeah. I mean, everyone knows, almost everyone knows that experience of being betrayed by someone yeah. you love and trust. Yeah. This was extreme. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I just, uh, it, you know, just misjudgment, miscalculation, um, misguidance. I, I mean. And being young and naive. How could you yeah. ever even imagine that? No. Someone right close to you would take advantage. Right. And that can only, and, and that, that will only spill over into you, how you look at things. Right. Mm. So, mm. um, so yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it's an experience. Everybody has one. And, and that, and that was mine towards, towards the end of my career. Right? And so was, what did you lean on then? So we're talking about that transition. Yeah. So what did you lean on when you don't have that structure of, touring the world and yeah. having certain dates where you've got to be certain places and you're with girlfriends that you know you're going to have a great time here and a great time there. Mm -hmm. Like when that goes, what was what did you lean on next? Is that when we connected up in Japan and things like that were happening in your world? Mm, 2008? No. That, oh, that would have been like right. Was that 2008? Yeah. Oh, wow. You have a good memory. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, well, that was towards the end. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was a hair so before. So you're starting to cultivate other things. You're Absolutely. like, okay, that's fading. I'm going to start. Sure. Yeah, and I and I always wanted that. to work with non-endemic brands, you know, and not to say that they the mm. 
OPS and that. Well, it was a bit non-endemic, right? Yeah. I mean, as far as like branching out totally. and doing other yeah. alternative 100%. things, right? But I, I did a really cool fashion collaboration with Rachel Roy out of New York City. But, you know, Vans wasn't happy with that at the time because I think, you know, they weren't they weren't too pleased with me, you know, kind of diving into fashion at the same time of being endorsed by Vans. And I, and I understand that and I appreciate that. Um, they were my main sponsor from head to toe at the time, but I was, I, it was cool. I was very adamant on branching out. And, Mm. um, I always had that, you know, I was like, I could be, you know, I could be sponsored by Prada. Right. And I wanted to see that within surfing as far as just excelling it and making it cool and high end and but like now you see athletes that are sponsored by Breitling and Mm. Audi and, Mm. you know, so I think that that's, I think that that's cool. And you're elevating, you're elevating the sport. (laughs) Uh, But once again, I think that, um, I think that what I leaned on towards the end was, uh, well, my dad died at the same time. So Mm. like, as soon as like my career ended and the finances crashed, my dad died. So that was like, wow. yeah, it was just a big shit storm. And, and, but then through serendipity, I met David. Mm. Yeah. So I went on a, on a very spontaneous trip to the Bahamas, three nights. Let's go. Here we go. Met David. And then my life, my life changed forever, which mm. was amazing. Yeah. It was really cool. Mm. So was it love at first sight? Uh, no, I mean, not for me. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yeah, because him and I, we obviously live different lives. I mean, he's a badass, man. That guy can do anything. I swear to God, I've never met a more capable person. But like I was, you know, gallivanting all around the world, board bags, sailor in different port, like, woo, you know, and then I show up and he's like, oh my God, who is this crazy chick? But I, I was all friends. Like there was no funny business in the, in the three days there. I was like, no, nah, it was all buddy, buddy, surfing, um, sailing, flying. Um, but then, yeah, definitely after like the third, the third day, little sparks. Flew. Oh yeah. And then he, he was the first guy that ever bought me a plane ticket to come back and, and visit him. Mm. I went to, I went to Panama with my brothers, um, on like a really, uh, like a little reunion trip which was nice. And then David and I stayed in contact over that month. And then when I came back to Florida, he bought me a ticket to come back. Mm. And then that was in the uh, end of 09. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. It's the longest relationship I ever had. Still, yeah. we're still running. That's <laughs> when, that's when I feel like we would have run into each other. Yep. You all. 100%. 2009 was totally the time because when I, um, Lauren and I both sort of became single at the same time. And when yeah. I reached out to her after a few years after we'd first met in yeah. Byron Bay and, yeah. and sparks flew, but we were, we were um, with people at the time. Yeah. Um, when I reached out to her, she was with you. Well, I emailed so you and you said there you were- was a, there was a screening of a surf film in the surf station parking lot. And I was getting ready to go to Canada to visit my ex to like have closure. Oh, wow. Um, and it was like the night before and I ran into you. Oh my God. We're sitting on the back of a truck of some kind <laughs> watching surf films. As you do. Yeah. <laughs> and I was so stoked to see you. And Aww. you told me about how you'd been in Japan with Dave. And a couple of days later, Dave sent me an email and touched base again after we hadn't spoken for years. And then when I got to Montreal in Canada, um, 
I opened up the paper and there was a review of Cove and it was playing in town. Mm -hmm. Like one of the first screenings, probably it was in autumn of 2009. Mm -hmm. And so I went and saw it um, and then wrote Dave back and told him about how I'd seen it and how I'd seen you. And you told me you were there and it was just all of this six degrees of separation. Yeah. Full synchronistic. Like a crazy little flurry when we live on opposite sides of the planet. Don't have anyone else that we collectively know that, that, you know, and it was just a timing thing. I was like, Oh, so cool. And then we just continued this beautiful, very cheesy, but prolific like pen pal ship for months until I ended up going oh. back to Australia. Mm. No, you surf pretty. No, you surf pretty. No, you surf. <laughs> no, no, for the record, I said, I think you're absolutely gorgeous. Oh. And, and Lauren wrote back, I think you surf pretty. <laughs> Let it be Not known. My, listeners. Let tower. it be known. Not my finest tower. Sometimes words fail, okay? That's so awesome. I hope that gets printed somewhere. On a t-shirt. She says it all the time. If I come in from the surf and I might have got a particularly nice way, yeah. she would say, I still think you surf pretty. It's true. And it means I a lot. I wasn't wrong. It's not. It's not. She's not wrong. It, it means a lot. Shit, man. You have a great memory. I didn't remember that. But. Yeah. It was, well, for you, it would have been a random encounter with another random, like, fangirl. No. <laughs> me. Stop. But for me, it was like, whoa, it was just all of these, like, connective tissue moments that <laughs> led me back to the Oh, game. that's yeah. so cool. Yeah. That's really awesome. Sweet. You have, you, you, I know, and you've spoken about how you've had all these great adventures. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about a highlight surf trip moment, an unforgettable wave or swell or experience that you'll just carry with you forever? I mean, Japan was pretty incredible. I mean, that doing, working on the coast. How did that, how did you, how did you come to be involved uh, I, I really think that that was greatly thanks to my brother mm-hmm. um, for lining that up for me um, through the Oceanic Preservation Society. Mm-hmm. I got they, Dave came in on it with. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you came in on it with more the sea the Sea Shepherd yeah. side of it, right? Yeah. And I came in on more on the OPS side, and not necessarily by by choice. I think that that's just how the relationships had, had initially formed, and I got invited. Um, onto that trip, but that was, that was pretty life-changing. That was incredible. That was an amazing experience. Mm, why? Um, I think mainly because I had never done anything like that before. Mm. I had never engaged in anything, uh, that raw and that mm. real. And I, I certainly had not done anywhere near as much as the environmental work, uh, or the conservationist work that you had done uh, leading up to that point. So that was a, it was a very new, new ground for me. It was still a radical space to be overtly, you know, doing direct action as a professional surfer. It wasn't mainstream like it is now. No, certainly not. Yeah. It was radical. Yeah. Yeah. And I hope, I hope that I maybe played and, you know, integrated a role in, in making that happen for people to come. So, uh, but that was a extraordinary experience. I learned a lot. I, I found it to be an incredibly awakening and intense and I, I'm very grateful that I was a part of it in just a very, very small way. Mm. Yeah, that was cool. It's amazing. Always, I always think about your professional surfing career in terms of experimentation and how you were experimenting, you know, surfing at the highest level, doing these fashion collaborations, working with non-endemic brands. And then also, and I wanted to ask you about this and maybe you don't want to talk about it, but I feel like you were one of the 
earlier women to experiment with a sexier image. Totally. Um, and I, I was just so curious to talk about what led to that decision. Cause there was a real proliferation of sexier, like, I mean, we can talk about whether it felt empowered mm-hmm. or objectifying mm-hmm. for you personally yeah. and, and how women's surf culture was really built around that for a period Absolutely. in time. Yeah. No, you ask away. I mean, I did FHM at a really young age. Yeah. I mean, I don't think FHM even exists anymore, but it was like. Oh, that's like a, right. I remember it's that. It's a men, men's magazine. It's a men's magazine. Yeah. 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 Maxim. Well, it's similar to Maxim. Mm-hmm. And in South Beach with uh, Daisy Shane Goodwin and uh, Claudia. Oh, she's going to hate me. Claudia Congal- Congalves, a mm. um, Brazilian girl. The three of us did that shoot. And that uh, uh, was. I was something. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I definitely dove into the whole sex appeal side of female surfing and certainly used that to my advantage of being tall and blonde. But I, I was thick too. I mean, you know, I was a big, I was a big, strong. You just looked like an wrestler. Amazonian, amazing, well, like yeah. Grecian goddess. Yeah. But goddess. no, I, I definitely, <laughs> I don't know that. That's but how, I, that's how you appeared to all yeah, of us. I mean, I, my hairstyles were changing. Like, so for, I mean, one day I looked like splash and the next day I was like, you know, dykes on bikes with like this super short haircut. Right? So I'm like, whoa, like it was very, old. you never knew what you were going to get, but um, I mean, I, I had extensions all the time and I was doing all these crazy fashion shoots and sexy shoots and wearing these tiny bikinis. And I like still have some of those bikinis to this day. I'm like, what on earth were you thinking? <laughs> I can't even let, I can't believe someone let me walk out of the house wearing that. Mm. Like, were, I you, just, were you still a minor at that point? And yeah. was this like manager, your family negotiating stuff? Yes. Just to get you opportunities? Yes. Yeah. Well, I that's what it comes down to, isn't it? It's because of a choice of like, at that stage, unless you were the winningest female surfer, right. there was nothing else. No. There were no other options. No. In, in the men's world, it was only just I was one of the first crew who never succeeded in competition right. and then became a free surfer. Yeah. I just was always a, you know, quote, sure. unquote, free surfer. Right. Um, before that, there was none of those opportunities. So right. it was like right on that edge at that time where there was enough to go around to support Women um, surfing just, is only there now. Yeah, there are yeah. only now women who are surfing non-competitive, making free, right, as free surfers, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, and only just, just, just. So, like, oh, it's, yeah. that's the thing is like the the context of that time is like you were doing that, but like if you wanted to avoid going to a freaking desk monkey life, mm-hmm. like, so what? You yeah. wear a b- bikini and you go take the pictures yeah. and whatever. You like you're keeping that ball rolling. Is yeah. that where your head was at, or was well, it different? I mean, I guess I was just being led by the shepherd at the time. But I mean, it was. I mean, I feel that even to this day, it's it's cutthroat to be yeah. a woman in in professional sport. Mm. I'm sorry, but you know, they got to sell shit. You know, it's marketing at the end of the day. Mm. I mean, these are people in suits working the monkey jobs, right. That are trying to sell product and push product. And it, and I know that this sounds brutal, but it's like, if you don't have the looks, you're not going to sell the product. And really that's what it comes down mm. to. And it's now just changing, right. It's, it's so nice and reassuring to see that. But when I, I can only speak from my perspective. And when I was a teenager or even a young teen up until the late teen, it was sex that sold. Yeah. Right. And and I was fortunate enough to have good enough looks and good enough talent. And I could speak on camera 
So I had a little bit of a triple threat package at the time that I certainly worked and used mm-hmm. to my advantage, mm-hmm. but it came crashing down, you know, and, and it's not, it's not, you know, I can't blame other people entirely for the reason why my career crashed. You know, that's, you have to take responsibility of your own actions in order to be able to make sense of anything. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was certainly came down to me. I started trying, you know, not, I wasn't trying as hard and mm-hmm. you know, I wasn't training as hard. I was, you know, I was maybe, um, dabbling in things that were superfluous than what I should have been applying myself to like sex appeal. Mm. Right. Mm. And it's, but it's, but that was the most, that was the most lucrative angle you could take as a female surfer. I mean, we saw, I feel like Alana Blanchard really came to personify that whole era. She was the highest paid female surfer for yeah. at least a year, a number of years. Yeah. Um, and I mean, her that's ass is her asset. I yeah. Mean, like, yeah. Well, she made it work. She, you know, you know, I don't know. I don't know whether to praise her or punish her. I mean, it's like at the end of the day, it's, you know, you, you choose your path and, mm. and, and, and that's, you know, that that's what you've chosen. It's not a lot of people ask, ask me about this though. Like yeah. a lot of people who are critical of me being critical of the sure. way the surf industry was right. Say, well, these are young women who are choosing to do this, right. To use their bodies to make money. And, and that's fair. And that's understandable when there is a fair and real choice to be made. Right. But the the fact is that nudity or, you know, bearing as much as provocativeness, possible, provocativeness yeah. was the most lucrative thing you could do more lucrative than being 100%. on tour. Yeah. And so that's not a real choice. No, that is yeah. swaying, you know, stacking the cards yeah. in one particular direction, yeah. encouraging female surfers to value in some cases, their looks, their bodies, their sex appeal more than their competitive, um, ability. Yeah. They're surfing. Absolutely. Ability. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it was a, it was a crazy time. I mean, for me, for sure. I did a lot of very, uh, you know, edgy things, especially for the, for the time, but I can't, you know, I can't bash myself or others or whoever, you know, helped me get into the situation at the time because it, it's, it's molded me to who I am today. Mm. Right. So I'm an imperfect person person that is just, you know, and that was my experience. Right. So, uh, I'm not, I don't know. It's hard now being older to be able to look at young girls coming up. Uh, I look, I look at it very differently. It's, it was in it what was, way, how, how do you, how do you see it differently? Um, I'm certainly more motherly, right. Mm-hmm. Like wanting to be a bit more protective. Right. Cause, yeah. uh, um, did you feel like you had people protecting you? Um, uh, I mean, yes and no, yes and no. Looking back, um, I guess when you're, you're young, it's so beautiful. You're so innocent. Right. Mm. So, uh, you don't, you don't really know what, what's, what's taking place around you, but, um, mm. that's a Yeah. That's a, that's a tough one, especially for like all the, the young girls coming up. But I, I find there's a lot more modesty now within, uh, obviously speaking about surfing within women's women's surfing. Mm. Uh, I think that everything has become much more modest and far more about your, um, skills and ability. Yeah. yeah. It feels and your voice. Yeah. Yeah. It feels healthier. There's, there's a spectrum of acceptability now that ranges yeah. from like the Carissa Moore's wearing boardies, just huh? focusing on performance to the, whoever the extreme provocative surfers are. Right. And that feels healthy when right. there's options. You can yeah. be a young girl growing up and, or people like Leah Dawson. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. I mean, there, there's a nice, uh, wide range now. It I think is, is 
very beautiful and that's cool. Yeah. It goes to show that because before, um, it wasn't an option for women to be free surfers. It was yeah. not, it was so, that's so interesting. I would have loved to have been a female Dave Rostovich who, who wouldn't have been, who wouldn't have loved to do well, that. I think right? you still could be. Well, thank you. That was very kind. But I, maybe, but, um, I, I think that it was not even an option for women at the time. Yeah. It was so, it was so interesting because women are the largest consumers, right? Which were like, you were saying in the beginning, like fronting, Quicksilver's bills, but they were using models mm. to endorse their product because the female athlete wasn't attractive enough to endorse the product. So, but then, you know, within surf, it's like, you gotta be core, bro. Like core. I'm like, oh, oh. like, no, nobody's core. You know, yeah. like at the end of the day, nobody's core. If you're running a business, you're running a business, mm. right? Yeah. So in my scenario and in my years within professional surfing, there wasn't even an option for me to be a free surfer, mm. which yeah. seems like such a oxymoron. Yeah. You would have almost thought the opposite because mm. women are so totally. fun and free and yeah. beautiful and out yeah. there like watching you surf today, cross-stepping. And it was like watching music yeah. and, and it was like, but I'm attracted to that. You know, yeah. am I attracted mm. to like raw and foamy at the mouth and like <laughs> decimate this chick in blue? Like, yeah. you know, like it's pretty interesting when you think about it like that, right? Totally. Yeah. So, but, but it just is. now it, you're starting to see like, well, no, I mean, Cassie and the door and Leah Dawson, of course, those girls have been around a long time, but yeah. now they're really like blossomed into these careers, which yeah. I think is so cool. It's come full circle and it's, it's cool to see that. Like, it's nice to see that women have a bit more options as far as what they want to do, right? Yeah, I think so yeah. too. Feels a lot healthier. Yeah. And I asked about the the sexy experimentation, not at all because I see it in a negative light, because that's often misinterpreted. I just no. think the 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 negativity was about the culture that yeah. didn't allow for there to be different ways of being a female surfer. Absolutely. Like that was the problem. Yeah. Oh, no. And, and I, I think it's come a long way. Yeah. And I take absolutely no offense to that question whatsoever. I think it's an interesting topic. So when we were in Japan, yeah. so we were in Japan in 28 or whatever it was, 2008-ish. Mm -hmm. um, and when the second time that we went back to the cove mm -hmm. to, to um, try to, you know, shine a, a light on what was happening there and, um, and, uh, just get people talking about something that was not spoken about at that time. Right. Um, we went back with a, a few people who weren't water people, yeah. but you and I are. Yeah. And I remember that feeling of the appreciation of having, you know, someone with skill, water, water skills, <laughs> right? Can you, you set know, this up? And maybe, maybe, maybe people who are listening are unaware of Taiji or the Cove. Can you set it yeah. up for us a little bit? Oh, well, they should be. Uh, um, yeah, you'd think they would. Uh, well, basically, I was traveling around the world one trip after the other for a few years at that point, doing work on dolphin and whale issues around the world where surfing communities butted up against um, these issues. So there are places where outside fishing fleets would come, like Chile, for example, and there was fishing fleets throughout um, the Pacific coming from Asia that would go all the way down to Chile and take whales from their waters. And so we would go to Chile and make sure that the surfing communities and different people there knew about that and wow. what they could do to stop that from happening. So awesome. Um, and so that was what I was doing at that time. Um, and I was getting pretty burnt out, but um, but I was making a lot of great new friendships and contacts in that world. And one of those was Louis Sahoyas mm -hmm. and the OPS crew totally. and Charles and all that mob. Yeah. And 
Um, and we met at a IWC. We had Podcast. Yeah, Louis was on oh, last year. Wow, yeah, that's awesome. It was great. It was really great. Wow, that's great. So cool. it was a really good chat. You'll get a kick out of it. It's pretty classic. Um, but <laughs> at that stage, I met Louis and the crew in Alaska at this International Whaling Commission meeting. Sounds like a band. <laughs> and uh, I talked to them about my plan to go to Japan mm-hmm. and that the surfing world there were into everything that I was up to at that time. Sure. They, were, they loved the whole hippie surfer deal. And so I was like, okay, well, there's this strange thing happening where I know more about what's going on in your coastal waters with these um, very inhumane practices by some of your fishermen than you guys do. So I want to get that information to you, meaning to the, the surfers of Japan, um, so that they at least know about it and then perhaps be able to do something about it themselves because it's their country, their culture. So when I told Louis that, he's like, well, in hushed voice, he's like, well, we've been going there the last few years and we've been documenting all of that and we're kind of finished, but we'll go back if you're going to bring a bunch of crew there wow. because Rick O'Barry is like hanging on by a thread with the whole deal and he would love to feel like the cavalry are coming in was, was wow. Louis's words. He's like he would love to feel that his work is not just on his shoulders but other people are going to pick it up. So it was this amazing meeting and I told him a few other stories about where I was coming from and he just got so pumped. And so that's when we all met up and we met up, you and I and the crew in Japan. Uh, And so the idea was to go out and do a paddle out at that stage. Now paddle outs, especially in Australia, are very common um, and they're commonly used for social or environmental um, issues. So like big oil just came to Australia to do massive exploration for oil along our coast and so 60,000 people paddled out mm. in circles around it's Australia. Fine. But at that time, it wasn't happening. And my idea was that in Japan, it's a very ritualistic culture, a lot of ceremony and mm. whatnot. We would go to that place where so many dolphins mm. and whales are killed in a very inhumane way. And mm. we would perform what surfers do all around the world, which is the circle to say goodbye to your fellow surfer. Absolutely. And that's that. And yeah. so my idea was to do that um, and to do it right there at ground zero where that's happening. Mm. Um, and then when we all connected up in Japan, mm-hmm. we went and did that. And um, I was in Japan for a few weeks before that doing different surfing things. And the fishermen in that area thought that myself and other Sea Shepherd related people were going to blow up their boats and wreak havoc in their town, in their port. And so they didn't do any drives of the cetaceans during that time. We went and did the first paddle out, which was all very fluffy and nice and everything. Um, and then as soon as we left that night, the fishermen went out and did a drive and brought some animals in, killed some so that the rest of the pod would stay and put the nets up. And that's when we all got the call that they'd done that, mm-hmm. the, but the bay was full of blood. Mm-hmm. And so that was when, you know, at midnight we decided we're going back. Mm-hmm. We're not going to take the 30-odd people that we'd organised um, with the first one, we just do a small group. Right. And that's what um, Karina and I and a handful of others were a part of. So, mm-hmm. Lauren, you were asking to set the scene with this. Um, and that's when we went back. And that's when I had a deep appreciation for knowing that we've got water skills. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, um, the rest is history. That It all went out like crazy around the world after that. Yeah. But the reason I wanted to bring that up was that was a moment where we could use something as seemingly ab- abstract as just being good surfers for something useful in the world. Absolutely. And I was wondering how you felt about that and perhaps 
other times in your life where surfing and a relationship with the ocean has been useful and meaningful in a way for you. So perhaps, you know, when your father passed away mm-hmm. or, you know, your mum's going through a mm-hmm. journey right now, mm-hmm. like can you give us and people listening an insight into, yeah, perhaps any moments or thoughts around how a water-centric life or a relationship with the ocean is useful and meaningful for you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in reference to the project that we worked on together in, in Taiji, I I only wish now, just being older and a little bit wiser, that I had used uh, my professional surfing platform to engage in more projects like that Mm. because that is really what prevails and on for decades to come Mm. so i i don't even think that i was aware of how monumental and uh pivotal that was for me at the time to be able just to be affiliated with something like that Mm. on on such a scratching the surface uh Mm. side especially in comparison to how heavily invested you were in, in, in educating yourself and knowing what was at stake there. Mm. So I, I really wish I had had a bit more time or had a bit more focus towards projects like that, because it was unbelievably gratifying to be a part of something like that. It was just so eye opening. Um, and, and through that, as far as, um, how the ocean, is able to carry you through situations. I think it was uh, just cool to see, you know, in the scene in the film that you and I are in that circle, just kind of keeping everything together Mm. while everyone was kind of losing it. Right. I mean, there was blood there was tons of blood in the water, you know, Dave and I are quite composed. I, I, I was wearing, I don't know if you guys were wearing lipstick cam. Yeah. And we were like the only ones that were like, I was actually afraid that I was going to drown or like, you know, go faint or, you know, so, yeah. uh, and that was just because that we had the experience of growing up in the ocean. And, and I think that that just in itself is so cool to be able to understand, to just remain calm and, and know that you're in the presence of something far, far greater, especially through utter calamity, which hmm. that was utter calamity. Um, so absolutely. I mean, the, the ocean gives you so much serenity and peace. Just like I, it's so funny. Even if I live a couple streets away from it, I just, I probably have to go every day just to make sure it's there. <laughs> you know, it's like having your therapist in arm's reach. Like, are you still there? Okay. So, okay. No, I'm <laughs> still answering the phone. Yeah, yeah, when so you I, call. I got it. I'll be back. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, no, it, it provides me with so much uh, serenity and, and peace and just, it's, it's water, just the flowing, the water just around you is just, it's uh, subliminal. And I think that you don't even realize how heavy it's contributing to your subconscious, you know, affecting you in such a positive internal way. It's magical. Like it's, it's truly magical. I'm so blessed to be a part of that. Like, I, I think that that's such a, uh, I speak to so many different couples or, 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 you know, people that have, chosen different people and some people have issues within their relationship. I'm like, well, what, what brings you together? What is that? Is it art? Is it music? Is it food? Is it, you know, you have to have, I really feel that that helps so much. It may not be like that for everyone, but I feel that like it's helped David and I so much just to have the ocean as the bond. It always brings you back. Like maybe it's the mountains, maybe it's the rivers, maybe it's airplanes. I, 
Mm. You know, but I feel that it just helps so much, especially if it's like fire, earth, water, if it's one of the main forces that kind of just like brings you back together and forms that bond because you can always find serenity within that, like, and, and, and make sense of life through that. Yeah. And newness. And newness. I find there's something about the being a couple and having a something outside of yourselves that bonds you totally this the spontaneity of the ocean the ability to have this outlet for play to play together that's absolutely crucial and then also to be able to have something completely unexpected happen Mm -hmm. in the ocean like almost drowning in the shore break in france and having to be rescued by your significant other sounds like an amazing story (laughs) just um it just makes life more dynamic Simply. Big time. Yeah. Karina, you've been in Florida for over a month now. Uh You were telling us about how during the COVID lockdowns, you spent 18 months Mm -hmm. in the Bahamas Mm -hmm. on the island that you had been living on for Mm -hmm. quite some time. And that was the longest stretch of time you'd ever spent in one place in your life. Yeah, I think that was the longest time I'd ever been in one place in my entire life. Mm. Yeah. Did that experience plant in you the desire for rooting deeper and longer in a place or did it make you have itchy feet? I guess a little bit of both. Mm. Yeah. A little bit of both, but I think it, it was, uh, it, it, it taught me so much about making the best of every situation or trying at least mm. to make the best of every situation and realizing that it really comes down to you um, and, and your excuses that are holding you back of, of making the best of any situation. Mm-hmm. So I think that if, and, and so many people experience that through COVID, right? Because everyone was locked down to some measure, some far more intense than others. I, we were incredibly blessed of what we, we had freedom up the wazoo. Mm-hmm. Granted, we were, you know, stuck in that country, but, mm-hmm. you know, similar to you guys, as far as your experience in Australia during COVID, but I mean, it just, it, it really honed in for me. Like, no, it, it's actually you that are creating all the excuses. You have every single resource to make the best out of this life, make the best out of the body that you have, mm-hmm. make it as strong and as healthy and as capable as you are. So it's, it was groundbreaking for me on, on, a, on a mental side and to be able to overcome issues that I had been harboring and battling and yeah, I mean that that's like a whole podcast genre in itself as far as like everyone's individual experience with how did you deal with, you know, being by yourself or mm. for that long. But um mm. no, I mean <laughs> I, I think that it was a it was a bit of both, right? Like as far as wanting a yeah, I mean, there's something about regiment and something about having your own sea salt shaker in one place for an extended period of time, which is nice and um a, a bit comforting. But then at the same time, it's like, I want to see as much as I can and do and try to do as much as I can while, while I can. Right. I mean, time goes by unbelievably fast. How we've been chatting the two of us about the struggles we've had with our parents mm-hmm. going through their own health challenges. How does experiencing your family suffering with health, give you fresh, new, or different perspective on your own well-being and and how you want to use your time in the world? Yeah, I think it it has to do with gumption, 
really I like that word. I just kind of learned it in the last couple of years. <laughs> um, gumption's important. Um, can you define it? I don't really know what that word means. It's a good word. It's a good one. You can, you can use it. I might yeah, latch onto it. Um, gumption means like guts. Here's a perfect example. If uh, I'm bleeding out of my leg and my calf muscles hanging out and you come and you stuff the muscle back in, you tape it up. You had gumption in that scenario. Yeah, right. You just dove right in. Yeah. Like proactive. Yeah. And you just, yeah. And, and you didn't even, it didn't, you didn't even let it phase you. You just got right in there and just had mm. to deal with the issue at hand, you know? And I, I don't like, like, as far as like your parents getting older, um, I, 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 Briefly, I, I spent some brief time in nursing homes with, with my dad, and it was the most depressing, most horrible, harrowing experience. And I mean, when I say brief, it was literally a few days mm. until we got him out. And we're a very Italian Norwegian family, very smothering. Everyone's involved, right? Everyone's got 10,000 opinions, but hey, you know what? That's <laughs> what I was dealt. So that's okay. So we're, but we're good. And none of us are attorneys or doctors, but we, Really, I think we'll go through thick and thin to help our our family members if it, if it's in a if it's in a tough time, especially with our parents. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, as as many as the indifferences that we have and the disagreements that we've had within my professional serving business, da da da. You know, when it comes time to hone in and focus on something within your family, you know, we're I would say that we do a good job at that. And and it taught me so much. I mean. By the, you know, I was 17, I was putting a condom catheter on my dad, you know, that's a big thing for a 17 year old to be able to do that because my dad, you know, he was going to the bathroom all over himself. That's, that's gumption. Mm. Right. And to be able to like be open and talk about that and help people through their experiences. Nobody knows Mm. what you're dealing with. You know, no one knows, you know, because it's like, you're not going to stay there and like have this whole story because someone else is probably going through just as much shit or more. Right. And now, you know, it's full circle and now I'm helping my mom go to the bathroom in the same way. Right. And it's, it's very real. It's very raw. And you're really able to see life in like full circle, but you have to remember that that is life, you know, and you have to either completely face it or completely turn around and go the other way. And then probably live with a lot of, you know, other bullshit that will nag on you mentally right because you didn't face it and it's and it's one of the hardest most realest things that you can face because it's it's your it's your mom you know or or your dad or you know the people that brought you into this planet so you're filled with so much guilt and did i do enough and have i do i do need to do more it's it's constant but it's like at the end of the day if if you are not happy and you're not taking care of yourself that is actually one of the biggest form of being selfish. And I think that that's such an interesting word that people misuse so much. Oh, he's so selfish. He's always doing things. Right. right. If you're partying, carrying on and being a dumbass. Yeah, absolutely. But if you're like exercising and taking care of yourself and eating healthy and being strong, you're actually helping the other people out around you because the day that, you lose that and you start getting slack and you start getting sick and your ass is in the hospital, then everybody around you is caring for you because you just didn't have the decency and the respect for the other people around you to take care of yourself. So it's like, you know, so I think that that is so messy. No, take the time, go to the gym, go to yoga, go surfing, like 
do you and take care of yourself because I guarantee you, you'll be called upon. Right. And I, and that is what I've learned so much is now is getting older and being able to like figure that out or being stuck on a rock for 18 months and like right? <laughs> living in plank position for too long. It's like, so I think that within, you know, my parents, my parents for sure, like that was, that was, that was huge for me. And now dealing it with, with, with my mom, um, and being able to live through that again, like what I did, you know, similar to what I did with my dad, but understanding that that it's, it's just life. You know, you just have to, you just got to figure it out. You got to just figure it out. And everybody has a very similar story. Just we're all going down the same streams. Everyone's in slightly different boats. Thanks for listening with us today. If you have a spare moment, please leave us a review or consider sharing an episode with a friend. Both help us to find the very best stories from our global community of water people. This episode was edited by Ben Alexander. The podcast soundtrack was composed by Shannon Sol Carroll, with additional tunes improvised by Dave and goofy-footed legends Neil Purchase Jr. and Christian Barker. We'll be continuing today's conversation on Instagram, where we're at Water People Podcasts. 